0: ...associating person and mission in a very Ignatian way. I mean, if if Shavara was the first one to write a theology of the exercises uh, of Ignatius, you really do have to see Balthazar as the continuation of that. And that's where the church begins. So the church is distinctively and essentially Marian. Now, it's also essentially Petrine. But the point would be that the, the Marian faith is the beating heart of the church. Hello,
1: and welcome to the Particular Good Podcast... I said particular good not particularly good it's a name not a claim
2: we're coming to you from st bernard's school of theology and ministry in rochester new york we've also got campuses in buffalo syracuse and albany we offer graduate education in all these places and anywhere in the world all of our programs can be completed online we also offer certificate programs in catholicism and the fine arts catholic bioethics and catechetical leadership
1: I'm Charles Hugh Suff, Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture. I'm joined today by Heather Hugh Suff, Adjunct Professor of English Literature. Hello, Heather.
2: Hello. Today we're talking with Matthew Kuhner, Dean of St. Bernard's and Assistant Professor of Systematic Theology, about the Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, Matt's specialty. Welcome, Matt.
0: Thank you so much. Great to be here.
2: So, I, we're just jumping in. How did you first become interested in studying von Balthasar? What was the draw there?
0: Wonderful. Yeah. So I suppose it was a, a faded thing in one way, because my, the whole theology department at the Sales University, where I went for my undergrad, was sort of entranced by Balthazar, right? Dr. Larry Chapp was there, who had studied at Marquette. No, Fordham, excuse me. And then Dr. Rodney Hauser, who studied at Marquette. They both had written on Balthasar for their dissertations. So Balthazar had sort of suffused the department. And I think I was learning Balthazar before I ever read him distinctively right because of that so, so that was really wonderful but then it was really through a, a personally like sort of guided study with a few other students that we did with both doctors, Chap and Hauser, that really kind of just entranced me particularly. I mean, reading his essay, Theology and Sanctity, I think was really what did it. Uh, That was really something. And of course, that's an essay that is short, it's readable, and I think it's saying something that not many other people have said, which is noticing sort of this bifurcation of theologians um, and saints in the more modern era. which something we can talk about later, but I think that's something that's distinctive and uh, yeah, just sort of captured me.
1: Excellent, so Matt, t- tell us more about who von Balthasar was. Uh, he was not a professor of theology, as I understand it. That's right, that's which right. Which may speak to the point you were just talking about, uh, but what? where did he come from, what was his life like, how did he become, despite not being a strictly academic theologian, one of the most important theologians of the 20th century?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I remember, so, and, and just to be clear, the, though Baltazar was the one that I focused on, um, I more just try to swim in his mind, right? That's what I try to do. I'm not trying to master him in any way. I remember I asked, I, I wrote to Dennis Turner one time, the, the Thomistic uh, British theologian. I said, you know, what would you recommend for a young student starting out in, in theology? And he said, you know, the two people that have impacted me the most were Chesterton and Thomas. And he said, for so many years, I tried so hard to get inside, right, or to get Thomas inside my mind. But then I realized that I just have to swim in his. And, and so that's sort that's of my, my posture towards Balthazar. Um, and so him even doing a biography of him is just, it's just too much, right, to kind of get at. So he was 1905 to 1988, uh, and he was uh, Swiss, born into a Swiss patrician family. I believe his uncle was a martyr or something like that, like something wow. really kind of illustrious in, in recent history. A very cultured family. Uh, you can go see his uh, tomb actually, which is, is, is beautifully, beautifully done. And, but I think when, when, if you're really trying to get at the essence of his biography, uh, he really was someone who from first to last was enraptured by Jesus Christ. I mean, I think that is just suffuses all of his works um, he was one who was called. And he had an experience in the Black Forest where uh, he said, you know, the, the, the call, the mission that he experienced entered like a flash of lightning. And this is sort of his major conversion moment, even though he was raised in a very sort of Catholic situation, or at least a, a Catholic formation. Um, yeah, that, that kind of calling really became paramount for him. And I think that's what you really have to see entering into his works is, is that sort of flash of lightning, as it were, where he has been just enraptured by Jesus Christ in the glory of divine revelation. And that maybe is what led him. So I don't, I don't think he had a terminal degree in theology. Uh, he did have a terminal degree in Germanistic, which is also something that's important to know about him. But he did a, a, a turn down a uh, professorship at the Gregorian in Rome for the sake of being a university chaplain at the University of Basel in Switzerland. So that does tell you a lot about him, but basically he was a retreat master. He gave retreats, uh, you know, according to uh uh, Ignatius of Loyola, right, uh, and and the Jesuit Jesuitical method, and uh, and that's that's really, I think, the most important thing to know about him is sort of enraptured by Christ, and he reminds me in his work. He reminds me a little bit of that, that spoiler Egypturum, those words that they use to describe the early church fathers, where they're just taking up all the riches of these cultures and bringing them into the conversation and the meditation and the contemplation of Jesus Christ. It's similar for him. He'll bring in anything, right? He'll bring in it all. And it's all sort of bending towards Christ, as it were. So
2: that's wonderful. I like the reason that I'm here is because I recently read the threefold garland, which is his meditation on the rosary. And I've been, you know, people tell you that he's so wonderful and I've got a few of his books that I never got around to reading. And reading that book, um, I'm so struck by what you said where you, you're just trying to swim in his mind um, because it's hard to summarize what he's even saying. Mm. Um, and uh, there's this moment in that book where he says something like, um, it's not about getting people to memorize Truths and be able to recite them. It's about experiencing them or something along those lines, which is makes sense with his biography. From what you're saying, um, he has this sort of cosmic vision that I've got. I've read this tiny book. It's like very limited, and he's written so much. But you you get this sense that um, he's addressing his ten, attention to a particular thing, but he has the entire cosmos in view um, and the way that God operates. Through these particular things, so again, the reason I'm here is because that I've been so struck, and um, my primary curiosity is when we were emailing. You said he changed your life, Um, so you said that you were reading him with, like, sort of with coursework with professors. But how how did that encounter with him affect you?
0: Yeah, that, that's such a beautiful point about what he says in in the Garland text. You know, he says explicitly that what entered his mind, like a flash of lightning, was not theology, right? It yeah. was it was the call from Jesus Christ, right? Personally, that kind of encounter, and and I guess one of the reasons that he he changed my life was along similar lines, in the sense that I was not I didn't go through solely an in intellectual conversion. You know, I think my, my reversion to the faith or whatever, having been raised Catholic but not really practicing fully, um, it was, was really sort of a, a retreat during high school. You know, and it was a very, it was a total retreat where I sort of was hitting rock bottom in a number of ways. And so, and then I began to read, right? And then the intellectual stuff was trying to catch up with that initial experience. And so throughout my, my studies, I always felt like there was a risk. I really sort of, bonded with people like Thomas A. Kempis and some of the fathers who noted the danger of intellectual study of the faith, mm-hmm. the dangers of theology, right? And, and the radical Aristotelians and the late medievals and all this kind of stuff who maybe, I mean, maybe one way to put it is that they, they actually ended up turning the living God into a concept, right? Right the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob versus the God of the philosophers for Pascal, right? This this whole kind of dichotomy thing. And that was something that I always struggled with. And, and I haven't, I don't think I've gotten it nearly right yet. But I think when I read Balthazar, he helps me to actually see how theology and kind of that pursuit of that encounter can go together right that that actually theology is ordered towards the deepening of one's contemplation and doesn't lead away from it by allowing god to be conceptualized and therefore somehow mastered where the divine glory is sort of pinched out of the equation almost you know so i think i think that's certainly the the one thing is that he sort of has helped me along those lines um almost (laughs) therapeutically as it were to make sure that theology is not delimiting god right uh, because he is always just sort of in a mode of contemplation, I think and and then the other piece would be that um, My own discernment of vocation in life was so fraught with disaster. I mean being an older millennial of course like <laughs> Just just can't do it right. I mean you don't yeah. have the, the basic tools and so uh so his, his book, Christian State of Life, the Christian State of Life. I
2: thought you were gonna say the Christian anxiety. <laughs> the Christian anxiety,
0: exactly, exactly. Maybe the two should be read together for, for millennials, yes? You know, that, that book, Christian State of Life, he just has such a helpful, obviously, that's another thing to say about Balthazar, right? Who he was, was he was a Jesuit. And uh, so it's, it's again, it's infused with, with Jesuit discernment principles, but his vision of the vocations are just really, really helpful. And I think if I could just paint one brief picture of what sort of liberated me was that I was sort of sitting in one spot, right? And I was trying to think, okay, well, I see this particular good over here, which is marriage, right? And then I see this particular good over here, which is priesthood, and I don't know how to choose. And it seemed like the weight of the world is on you, right? The anxiety, all that kind of stuff. And if I choose wrong, God knows what's going to happen, right? So, and, and what he said that really impacted me was prior to any discernment of those particular goods is the good that is common to the Christian state, which is the call to love. And that each of those particular states of marriage or or priesthood or religious life, those are actually concretizations or particular goods within the more common good of the Christian state. And so he said, essentially, I mean, if you want to discern, just make sure that you're living the common call, (laughs) which is the call to love. And by love, of course, he doesn't mean a kind of saccharine or emotive reduction. He means the love of the cross, right? So that maybe is the best way to discern, is just not to be worrying about where you're going to be, but actually attempting to live sanctity in the day-to-day here, and allow that to sort of be cultivated in you, and therefore it will become more clear um, as things move forward. So that was one piece that just, I think, so, and my wife would say that definitely saved my life, um, and maybe hers as well, I don't know. (laughs) That's
2: wonderful, yeah, I think so many people try to zoom out and see the entire picture when they're making a choice that's going to affect them forever down the road when yeah. it's kind of impossible to do that and you do get swept up into abstractions when really it's a choice in front of you, like a person or an order, or um, like a direct path is normally how those choices are made, which Amen. grounding that in love, that's wonderful.
0: Yeah, so true. So true. And Ignatius's attention to the interior movements too, because I had this sort of intrinsic mistrust or distrust of my, of the desires that I had and various things. And of course they need to be thoroughly discerned themselves, but I think the Ignatian principles really worked wonders. And so that's something that I usually try to bring into these conversations with students or other things as kind of an Ignatian-inspired approach. Um, Father Tim Gallagher's books on discernment have been really helpful, and I find them very constant with Balthazar's uh, recommendations along these lines. So,
1: That's great. That's yeah. wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm curious um, to bring it back, to, you know, to academic theology, uh, and, Sorry, no, sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I'm derailing this. No, 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 <laughs> not my point at all. <laughs> I was uh, enjoying that very much, and I feel bad for uh, taking away the, the really strong vibe and going straight into <laughs> schemas. but. Um, I would like to understand where he belongs in this sort of a schema of 20th century Catholic theology, with people like Karl uh,
0: Rahner and and so forth. A big and controversial question, yes, and and I think in some ways, he so 1905 to 88, right? So he was living in kind of the cream of the 20th century. lived through both world wars, Second Vatican Council, right, the the whole bit, and. Um, and then also the post-conciliar time, too, he, he, he sort of lived through. And in some ways, because of that, he really stood at the nexus, or, or at least in, in contact with several major themes of 20th century theology. So just to sort of name a few of them, uh, one of his mentors was uh, Henri de Lubac, who was part of, obviously, the Ressourcement movement in France, you know, going back to the fathers, back to the sources, in order to see what we can do today as we read the signs of the times, right? And just to learn from them and to kind of allow that to come forth. Um, He also was friends with Louis Boyer, who maybe could be considered part of the liturgical and scriptural kind of renaissance that happened in the early 20th century and and earlier, right? Um, And then he also was really good friends, or, or was mentored by Eric Shavara, who, had the famous debate with Karl Barth. And so Karl Barth is another kind of intersection that he's sort of uh, at the center of, um, as it were. And Karl Barth famously said that uh, Balthazar's book on his theology was the best ever written. So there's a way in which, and they were friends too, so they would, they would go see concerts together and things. They would, they would live, they lived uh, in the same city, right? So. Uh, so so there's a lot of of sort of confluences there, and then, of course, as a founder of the journal Communio, uh, Balthazar knew people like Ratzinger, he knew Wojtyla. There's a famous story that uh, uh, Ratzinger and Balthazar were praying together during the conclave uh, so that JP Two might be elected, right, so that Carl Wojtyla might be elected. So there's all these crazy kind of stories, right, of, of all of this. Yeah,
2: seeing all those figures um, together is... Wild.
0: Yeah, really remarkable, really remarkable. And then, of course, at the Vatican Council, he actually wasn't there. He was not a peritus or an expert at the council, which is kind of ironic when we think about him as maybe one of the greatest Catholic theologians of the 20th century. But he was writing his magnum opus at the time, which maybe that God deemed it was a better use of his time. I don't know. But, you know, <laughs> but he was there. He was doing it. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so there's a lot of kind of intersections there. And I think you see all of those kind of lit up in his work. Um, and in all of those, he sort of takes them up and, I think, creates a unique synthesis in contemplation of divine revelation. Um, I think one of the things that is key for Balthazar that makes him so distinctive and maybe, um, maybe was his greatest contribution in preparation for the Second Vatican Council was a kind of Christocentrism, right, that he really wanted things to be um, seen beginning and ending with the revelation in Jesus Christ, right, personally. And in that respect, that's what led him to have so much in common with Karl Barth. Mm-hmm. It also is what led him also to maybe his differences with Karl Barth, because he thought that Barth kind of lapsed into a Christo Monism at times, right? uh, yeah. where nature and the goodness of creation would be foreshortened um, for the sake of, which is something that's a common Catholic critique of Protestantism, right? Is that nature and creation are kind of uh, foreshortened, but you know, in that way, so it became a sort of Christo Monism. Whereas Baltazar wanted to kind of bring together uh, a more Catholic impulse, but maybe keep that radical Christocentrism there. And so when Gadi says that you know uh, it's it's in Christ that the human person has to look for fulfillment, uh, for the fulfillment of their actual humanity, that that's very much a kind of Christocentric theme that runs all the way throughout Balthazar's work, uh, and I think is is very important. Um, the 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 kind of yeah. Karl Rahner and, and Balthasar have a famous uh, feud, kind of a running feud, as it were, at least theologically, where they have very different starting points, I think. They have very different um, approaches. Uh, you know, Balthasar, they, they both kind of had critiques of the scholasticism or the scholastic method that went immediately before them in the early 20th century and, and back back further, uh, but they both dealt with it in very different ways, right? Rahner, as it were, kept more of the scholastic method and, you know, dialogued with Kant and others within that method. Um, Balthazar attempted to dialogue with... German idealism, various things, but within a method that was more akin to the church fathers and more akin to something that that sort of was not as scholastic in terms of its method. So I think in that way there's a basic difference there between the two. I think there's also a difference, uh, just in general, in the spirit of their work. You know, if Rahner is at att- is attempting to figure out how grace is always already present in nature and always already present in the world. Balthazar is continually driving people towards divine revelation, right, continually. So I think there's a lot of reproachment that could happen there, but I do think that there's a bit of a, uh, yeah, there, there's a bit of a, a feeling of, of theological tension. There's also, I think, historically speaking, I mean, in American Catholic theology, Rahner, at least this is the way the story's told, I mean, Rahner was generally ascendant throughout the 80s and 90s, you know, and and maybe even today in terms of the professional faculties. And Balthazar was sort of seen as this backwater artsy-fartsy type of guy who <laughs> wasn't a serious theologian, you know, all this kind of stuff. You read him, you generally get confused or overwhelmed. And it's Maybe because he's not making sense, you know, all this, all this sort of stuff, right? Um, but really, it was through the work of Father Ed Oakes and, and others. I mean, uh, both of our sort of started making a comeback in the in the nineties, two thousands, because of Ignatius Press kind of publishing his works and things like that. So, you've really seen more of a. Uh, uh, a sort of tilting of the scales, at least in younger scholars, towards Balthazar, I think generally, not again totally, but generally speaking. And that's happening at the same time that you have this kind of Thomistic resurgence where there's a move not so much again uh, uh, you know, towards Rahner, but more towards the Thomistic commentators and more towards kind of the the, the, the sort of Thomism of um, Attorney Patrice and various things like this. So now you have this, I mean, I think where the current debate sits. Is more of this sort of tripartite thing between the, the Thomistic resurgence, between Ranarians, and then between Baltazarians. You know, there's sort of this, this tension between those three. And uh, as someone who went to Ave Maria for the Ph.D., I mean, it was definitely the Thomists and the Baltazarians kind of intention <laughs> there, right? Uh, which is, it was a lot of fun, and, and it was just a lovely time. But uh, but yeah. But so that's some of the background. And um, and I will say that I think in terms of. Balthazar's theological method, because I think that's one of the keys. I think he's often dismissed because his method is not fully understood. Mm-hmm. He makes a lot of demands upon his readers. He, he's just difficult. It's hard to find a point of entry for him. Um, and I think in method, one has to understand that he really is attempting, you know, as you were saying, Heather, he sort of has sort of this cosmic vision. He's always attempting to contemplate the whole. And that's really frustrating because it's almost as if he has, he's contemplating the reality and all of his work are almost like these lines sort of going towards the center, right? He has this, this word that he, he uses, which in English maybe could be translated to infolding, right? He's interested in seeing how everything infolds to the center and then unfolds back out, right? Analogically and catalogically. So so he's constantly sort of making reference to the Sorry. center.
2: Analogically and catalogically?
0: Exactly, analogically being, uh, you know, Anna being right up, mm-hmm. up moving upwards from creation upwards and then catalogically moving from revelation downwards. So that's sort of two, I think he, he writes about this in Theologic Two, which is the third part of his trilogy. But in some ways, I think I find that that kind of schema, those two upwards and downwards movements which i think some would argue are intrinsically part of analogy more generally speaking i think that sort of is really helpful to understand what Balthazar is doing at all times he's always infolding and unfolding right from the center and um and in that way you know if you're not i think this is key right and this is maybe why i describe him as just someone who's enraptured by divine glory is because if you're not seeing if you're not contemplating alongside him it's going to be a lot more difficult to understand what he's doing or where he's coming from you know he's not trying to sever off from the whole to give a complete package he's contemplating and and giving you lines of access so he actually describes his work almost as walking around a statue, right, and getting getting a, a vision of it from all sides, um, mm-hmm. as it were, and pointing out, okay, here's the, the the slope of the shoulder here, here's the way the shadows fall here, or, you know, whatever else. And so um, so that that's a really key part of his method. And because of that, his method, I think, is aesthetic, right? It's something yeah. that is, it, is suffused, again, with a kind of um, paradigm of the arts um, in that way. And... Particularly, this is something that, that is, is more or less an interest of my work. Um, there's a German scholar who writes about the way in which Balthazar's method is fugal. It's kind of interesting, right? He, he wrote a famous work, The Art of the Fugue, kind of talking about how some of Bach's fugues are like the height of Western music, right? This is really great. Um, and uh, the people in the office here really despise when I blast uh, the fugues. <laughs> And I always announce that it's a fugue day today, and everyone runs and hides. <laughs> but nevertheless, so, so uh, but, but what's, what's a fugue, right? You could say a lot about a fugue, but I think one of the points is that there, there's, there's sort of, the fugue is a whole but it's made by kind of these resurgent themes that that double back on each other that crop up again and again that kind of you know come together and harmonize in really elaborate and complex ways and in that respect i think that is absolutely Balthazar's work that you you you're reading and you're really being taken on a contemplative sort of experience of what someone is seeing and they're noticing different fugal themes here and there right and they're bringing them up again and so when you when you're reading him it is almost like an aesthetic you yourself have to be in a more aesthetic mode where you're sort of trying to take in what he's saying, then you can, in terms of ratiocination, right, then you can sort of assess and consider what he said. And, and so there's there's sort of a, a two-step thing there. And I think if you want to move, a lot of my friends who are more um, Thomistic in method, they get very frustrated very quickly because yeah. you do need to sort of have that more, and, and that is a burden. I think it's a risk of his method, right? And you need to, in order to have a grasp of what he's saying, in terms of maybe more of that, the, the second act of reason or whatever you want to say, you, you need to have read a good bit of it in order to understand the fugal themes that arise again and again, so on and so forth. So, sorry, that was more than he bargained for, but I, but I do think well, that's, that's important to, to kind of know moving into him um, is that, that this, is, this is how maybe he's not an academic theologian, one of the ways. Um, so, yeah.
1: Could I jump in with that and say, as you're describing this, um, Aesthetic. My understanding, as I read a very little bit of his work, is that some of this is expressed in his Christocentrism because mm-hmm. the Aesthetic Theology that he's, he's, one of his series is titled Aesthetic
0: Theology. Remember that document? Right. Theological Aesthetics. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Theological Aesthetics.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. The uh, A focus there is this analogy of being, right, that mm-hmm. he develops early on, which Ties into his focus on the glory of God as this unifying theme as the descent, the revelation. Yeah, uh, yeah. through Christ and in all the ways. If I'm understanding it correctly, analogy of being, where the creature beholds the Creator and is changed in this sort of lightning bolt, like you described for he himself, is a matter of seeing God's glory and then responding to it. Is where the drama of the theological method comes in—the call and response. Is that? Could you tell us a little bit about the analogy of being as this important uh, <laughs> for his mentors, for him, and quick then, how does this <laughs> quick summary exactly play into his theology, his theological aesthetics, and the glory of God?
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and you know, there's. Um, there are people who spent their entire lives, obviously, writing about the analogia entis, the analogy of being, so there's not much that we can say here that will uh, sort of crack that not in any considerable way, and there will always be someone who can disagree with my phrasing of the analogy of being, because there are different modes of it or different forms of it, right? But I think at its most basic, maybe, you could take that the famous line about it, which is that um, any similarity between God and the creature, there's always a greater dissimilarity operating therein, right? So in a certain way, God is not just um, the the top stone of the pyramid of created being, right? In other yeah. words. And so when the evolutionary uh, biologists get to the end of, of the corners of the universe and they've discovered that God's not there, they say, oh, there's no God, right? Or the philosopher who, when he's going through created being, gets to the end of created being and says, oh, he's not there, right? No, And this is why for Thomas, um, you know, uh, God is is a bit more elusive in, in this way, right? God is not a being; He is being. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting. And for and, and maybe one of the, the easy ways to talk about this is is the distinction between um, essence and existence. Well, this isn't easy, but but I think grammatically <laughs> you you can, you can do it, right? Where where um, you know Matthew is a man man is the essence, right, of of what I am. That's my nature, okay, so on and so forth, but that I is is my existence, right? I I is also, so I am a combination of a what and an is, as I am right now. We can think of things that just have whatness, like a unicorn, but maybe there is no isness to them, right? They don't actually exist, Um, and so, but one of Aquinas' points, I think, along these lines is that uh, we are contingent in the sense that our whatness is distinct from our isness. There's nothing in my whatness as a man that means that I have to exist Yeah. Right. in that way. I can fall out of existence. Maybe God mm-hmm. can still conceive of a what for me, but but a, yet I am not an is at that point, right? Or whatever that means, I'm not in the act of existence. Um, and so in that way, um, we are drawn from nothing into something, right? We, we become an is and a what. Uh, the contention here is that God actually, his what is to is, <laughs> right, right? I mean, in, in that sense, right? He, yeah. he is isness, yeah. so, so for him to be is what he is. So his essence and his existence are actually uh, identical, right? They're, they're, they're sort of there. So, so in creatures, there's a real distinction between isness and whatness. For God, there is no such distinction. He is Isness. So so that means that in a certain way, that's the gulf, right? That's that's sort of the gulf, the dissimilarity between God and creatures. Um, and that means that we can't just say easily, right, that, oh, well, um, I'm kind of good looking, so then God must be good looking the way that I am, right? Or, you know, I know what it means to be good, so therefore I know what it means. For the listener. <laughs> <laughs> True, in this case. I had a student once in class. He said, "He said, uh, man, if I'm made in the image of God, God must be one good-looking fella." <laughs> <Right>? <laughs>
1: I'm like what?
0: And all the ladies were like bashfully like laughing. Yeah, you know, whatever. He, <laughs> he was pretty good-looking. So, so yeah. So, so in that sense, there's there's this gulf right metaphysically between God and the creature. And I think in that sense, um, Balthazar picks this up in a really big way from Shavara and then he takes it up again later on um, in a sort of renewed sense maybe with Ferdinand Ulrich. But this is so crucial for his work and and the reason is this, is that a lot of people portray, um, and, and this may be a reason for his Christocentrism too, a lot of people portray Balthazar as this kind of theologian who was obsessed with beauty. And I would rephrase that, I would say he's not obsessed with beauty, he's obsessed with glory. Because for him, You can't just go because of this gulf, right? This metaphysical gulf. You can't just go from beauty to divine glory and say that they're the same thing as if they're univocal, right? What we think of as beauty is not simply, right, what beauty is in God or what glory is in God. So he's very, very cognizant that we don't want to take earthly categories and project them onto God. Again, because God is sort of holy other in that way. Once we see that holy otherness, then we can say, okay, this is how we can understand the similarities, right? And and vice versa. But it's in Jesus Christ who actually enters created being as divine being, Mm -hmm. who actually reveals to us within the bounds of created being, which is the, the whole miracle of the Incarnation, he actually reveals to us what divine glory is, maybe for the first time, in a sort of full sense, right? So this is why he's so Christocentric, because he's so attentive to actually the real distinction and the fact that there is this analogy of being that you can't just transgress that gulf easily. So this is why Christ is the one who comes to us, right? And he sort of leads us in what that is. Um, And so he really is the theologian maybe of glory, not so much of beauty. Then he doubles back and he says, okay, let's reflect upon, right? What exactly? Let's reflect upon all the nitty gritty of aesthetic theory. Let's, let's talk about forma, splendor, you know, the whole bit. We can do all of that and we can discuss it, but let's never forget that the moment of glory is the moment of the cross. And according to earthly categories of beauty, that's pretty difficult, right? So, so, you know what I mean? So, and and then the descent to hell is sort of built into that too. So, Um, Obviously never seen apart from the resurrection, but nevertheless, um, earthly categories of beauty, such as the Greek categories of beauty, are going to have a difficult time with that. So as much as he's really interested in talking about how beauty, in our experience of it, can really be an access point to divine revelation, he's equally, or maybe even more so, uh, basically saying, look, we have to be careful here because of that analogy of being. So... Um, yeah. Now, and there's other ways of parsing this. I'm emphasizing the the, uh, the dissimilarity a little bit because I think not many people get that with Baltazar. I think I think that's a little bit less emphasized than Baltazar. But um, but Bart, for example, responded negatively to the analogy of being because of the similarity part. Just um, sort of interesting, right? So, so you can <laughs> yeah. sort of take it different ways. It's it's a big concept because even though we our is and our what are not sort of just our whatness is not to is um nevertheless we are a what with an is just like god is now right just just like god is as well so, so even though there's a distinction a real distinction for us between our is and our what nevertheless we still have each of those just as god does so you can see sort of there's a yeah so
2: that's a constant double vision the ascent and descent going on all at the same time he's trying to cover both that's well i don't understand why it's confusing to keep up with him um that's uh, so i yeah, i yeah. wanted to talk about mary's renunciation um i'm obviously focusing on the threefold garland but i what really struck me while reading that is sort of resonating with what you've been saying about beauty and glory where he has this um feeling of almost should be contradiction, but isn't. He's Mm -hmm. sort of getting at the point, which is never one thing. It's always two at the same time, where um, glory would be similar to beauty. It should, we think maybe they're leading to the same thing and then suddenly you're confronted with the cross as the (laughs) utmost example and you're like, what? How how does this work with human life? And in the threefold garland, Obviously, it's a yeah. contemplation of the rosary, so it's all about these moments and very focused on Mary's experience with the Lord. Yeah. And in his section on the fiat, where it's like you're, you consent to be given everything, basically, yeah. um, and then he spends the whole book talking about Mary's renunciation and that <laughs> the moment of her ascent and her consent and her fiat is, contains every renunciation that a person can make. And that isn't just demanded, but given, where she says yes. Yeah. And in that moment, she says yes to the cross and yes to mm-hmm. losing her son. And I, I guess where's the question in that? <laughs> just, um, yeah. is that does yeah. that come up elsewhere? And um, you've already spoken so beautifully about this dual vision that he has mm-hmm. and the sort of like theology in motion that I'm getting from your summary. But um, w- would there be somewhere that you'd suggest going forward in his work to to read more about Mary and her renunciation. Yeah, you
0: know, he, I think in some ways, maybe one of the things that could be said, um, and this is sort of another maybe untapped aspect of Balthazar that there could be a lot more work done upon, um, is that he might be the theologian of the dark night of the soul, I think, in some ways. I mean, that, that factors into that theology and sanctity article that uh, I mentioned before. And there's really an interesting feature here. And, and let me just go to the heart, maybe, of, of the source, is that a lot of people kind of wonder about Balthazar's theology of Good Friday, right? The, mm-hmm. Because he really wants to play up the suffering and the desolation that Christ experienced on the cross. But when you read his theodrama, right, the second uh, you know, of, of, his, of his trilogy, the, the second volume of the trilogy, he, he includes a lot of paradoxes here, such as um, the Father and the Son were never more united than on the cross. And yet there was an experience of absence, right, in, right. in this way. Um, and I think, I think one of the basic conceptual ways to kind of handle this, and of course this is weak because it is conceptual. I had a professor who said... Theologians should never draw on the board to articulate theological points, right? <laughs> As he proceeded to draw on the board, right? So, so you, you sort of have to do this, right? The, the up and down, right? The whatever. Yeah. And um, one of his points is that the the love, the, ex- the difference that's built into love, the love of, between the Father and the Son, is actually greater and can encompass the distance of desolation. So it can sort of take up that distance, as it were, stretching it to the max, but the love sort of can encompass all of it. So the desolation can actually be encompassed in the actual broader love, because of course love presupposes distinction, right? And so for him, one of the interesting things is that he he thinks that one of the things that he wants to do is, you know, when you talk about the difference between um, God and the creature, for example, or the distinction in God between the persons. He wants to articulate that distinction can be a good thing it's not necessarily just a negative thing right it's it's something that can actually be positive and in that difference lies the drama right that's where the drama opens up because you have either in in the divine the created sense you have two wills right the human and the divine will just like in christ you have that or in uh, to, to use Thomas's terms, in, in the Trinity you have the way in which each person manifests the one divine will, right, either as received or as given, right, as the Father. and So, so you sort of have all these, these distinctions that you can make. But, but that would be a key point, is that that distinction is not a wholly negative thing, right? which is, which is important, right? So in other words, the fact that we are not God is actually a good, right? in the sense that it allows us to have a communion with God, right, in a particular way. And so, so that's, that's sort of a, a beautiful thing. So for Mary's desolation, the experience of desolation, and I was thinking about this the other day saying the joyful mysteries, because every single joyful mystery... <laughs> Bears some suffering in or around it, right? So the presentation, right? You've got the, you know, Simon saying, right? The sword will be, you're like, what the heck? She's just (laughs) like, okay, thanks, like, for being the Debbie Downer, right? Yeah, right. So, uh, you know, so on and so forth, and and the enunciation with people misunderstanding, you know, Joseph and all that kind of stuff, right? So you you could just go down the line, um, that every experience, and and this is very much kind of John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, but every positive experience of God through divine revelation or through mysticism will always include a kind of othering also. And that's a good thing, that's part and parcel of it, right, to make sure, at least in in John of the Cross's theology, right, to make sure that you're not sort of attaching to creaturely things, but you're actually sort of approaching God. So you're sort of burning away things that are not appropriate for the dissimilarity of the analogy of being, right, as you sort of approach. so this is maybe what God means when he says, you know, I, I, I chastise my friends, right? And things like this, right? Yeah. That, that his friends coming closer into communion means that you actually will be uh, kind of desolate in, in a certain way. Um, but then, of course, sin <laughs> enters the picture, and that adds a whole new layer of this, which uh, so not just metaphysically with the difference between creatures and creator or the difference in God, but the difference that comes in because of sin, which is a sort of mortal difference, almost, as it were. And uh, in that way, you know, Balthazar was very keen on the fact that um, the saints, particularly Mary, participate in Christ's suffering on the cross and the desolation that he felt, because that desolation was was sort of not just the, the distinction between his human nature and the divine nature on the cross, but it was the distinction that was wrought by sin, right? He suffered sin. He became sin on the cross. And what does that mean? I mean, in some ways, you could say it means that he was, he became the separation affected by sin, right? Because sin separates you from life, right? Separates you from God. So, um, so profound stuff. But he, but the saints really do, he thinks, participate in this. And because he sees kind of the saints almost as a as an unfolding of revelation. He thinks that one of the things that needs to be done in modern theology is to take a look at people like, he wouldn't have said Mother Teresa, but now we can say Mother Teresa, Mm -hmm. you know, to look at St. John of the Cross, to look at Teresa of Avila, and actually not only think about what their experience says about the weakness of their created nature, but actually look at that experience and say what it tells us about, or or contemplate what it tells us about Christ's own suffering on the cross. Mm -hmm. Because clearly he's allowing his saints to sort of participate in that desolation both is created, but also as one sort of affecting some kind of redemption from sin and participating in that, making up what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. You know, in terms of the head and the body. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. That, that's just a, a, a reflection, but I think that's you'll find that all throughout his works. That that union involves differentiation, hence the drama. And so you can have a union, right? So, so just having the dark night of the soul or having desolation actually doesn't mean that you actually are far from God or, you know what I mean, in, yeah. in that sense, just like the immense abandonment of the Son on the cross does not mean that he no longer is consubstantial with the Father.
1: This uh, reminds me of the Apostle Paul, like you just cited this um, making up what is lacking the sufferings of Christ is yeah. Paul's. Uh, stance on his own suffering. What you said about union and dissimilarity reminds me of something like Romans 6, 6, 7, and 8, which is not only about the suffering, but about I'm buried with Christ, I'm raised with Christ, says Paul. But then also you plunge into Romans 7 where he says, uh, I can't do all that I wish. Mm. Uh, Whatever he's talking about there is some angst in Romans 7, (laughs) it's quite clear. And then he moves into Romans 8, which is a more realized eschatological stance on the love of God for the saints. And reading those things, uh, reading those chapters, it's sort of hard to hold them all together. Mm. But I sense that this back and forth, this union and this similarity, this embrace of the love of God, but embrace of union with Christ in suffering, and then continually being reminded of one's own lack is uh, part of what Paul's doing
0: here too, right? That's beautiful, that's so beautiful. Yeah, and maybe Balthazar provides a helpful kind of key for those passages, because he he is, I mean, if there's one thing that you could say um, about Balthazar's method, in addition to what's been said, maybe the next most important thing is that scripture is everywhere, right? It's all scripture. I mean, all the time. And scripture scholars object, maybe like yourself would. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Let me know as you read more of him. Uh, sometimes they object as to how is using scripture, but he's using it as a theologian, as yeah. you've commented privately, you know, in our conversations. And I think um, one of one of the keys there, and maybe this is maybe the summary, because I realized I was rambling a little bit. But I think one of the One of the key summaries is that there can be a certain view of the mystical ascent um, in Catholic spirituality where there's the burning away of your own attachments and the entry into eventual union, where there's something like a kind of unitive bliss that might occur even here, that kind of rapture, right, Mm -hmm. or or whatever. And Balthazar doesn't dispute any of that, but what he says is it's precisely at that height of union that in fact, Christ might ask you to share his suffering at that point. So in other words, just because Mother Teresa was going through the dark night of the soul, you can't just chalk that up to the fact that, well, she still had earthly attachments, right? And all that stuff. It might in fact be that she was fully purged and she was kind of living the life of what we think of as a saint at that point. But for the salvation of the world, God was asking her to undergo these sufferings, reparative sufferings, right? So on and so forth. So it's not, in other words, it's not so platonically simple, right? Where, where right. it's this it's this naked ascent that opens up into the pure vision of God, of course, because God himself, right, embarked on a descent. Mm-hmm. And that's key, right? And then the ascent happened, but the descent was for the reparation of sin. And we still live in the era, right, or the age of Christ, right? Where that, that sin is being atoned for by the head and by the body. So so I think that's one of both, like schema things that he's trying to do, is trying to get us out of that simple Platonic ascent, not oh, yeah. disputing the general framework, but to say it, it, Christ makes this a bit more complicated. And yeah. sin. Right, right, exactly, yeah. Um,
2: that's the same vision he sort of has for the church in the Threefold Garland, where he says um, at one point, like if you... Forget your true identity as the the true church the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. You like you can't treat your failings as if you're just a normal institution. That's that's not how you should think about it. Yeah. But then he goes on to say that the the true glory of the church is when she pers- is persecuted and when she mm-hmm. uh, is like humiliated in the in the world. Like that's the glory <laughs> of the church. So it's this. You can't. There's like it's hard
0: amen amen oh that's beautiful that's beautiful yeah and there can be a danger in the in us thinking that the glory of the church is the institutional glory of the church or whatever you know that type of yeah
2: but he flips it every time you're you hear like don't treat yourself like a normal institution where you have to enact policies to fix the problems that you have and whatever under Mm -hmm. human power and you're like well the church is kind of messed up. Like, maybe you should think about uh, doing a little bit more and then immediately following. He's like, and the glory is when you're yeah. suffering and humiliated in the world. It's like, oh, okay. That's what the sign is of success. It, it's not like Amen. having political power or...
0: Right. anything else right or anything exactly exactly and you know one of maybe this is another link of baltazar's importance with regard to the psychomatic council is you know the psychomatic council famously included their words about mary in the schema on the church right in lumen gentium big controversial decision right so on and so forth if i recall Ratzinger was on the side of inclusion in the document of the Church. Wojtyla was on the side of it, making a separate document for Mary. So that's sort of <laughs> is, is interesting, right? Whatever. But you know, for for Balthazar, that that's that's really key for him, right? He says, when did the Church start? Did the Church start with the call of Peter? Did the Church start Holy Thursday, right, with uh, yeah, the traditional kind of formation of the priesthood, right? You no, know, it started in the chamber at Nazareth, or I mean, uh, you know, yeah, exactly. The, I mean, the Annunciation, basically, yeah. in the chamber of Mary's heart, first yeah. and foremost, because as Augustine said, if she did not conceive through faith in her mind, she wouldn't have conceived in her womb, right? So that's where faith is born in Jesus Christ. is like right there. And that's where the church begins. So the church is distinctively and essentially Marian. Now it's also essentially Petrine, but the point would be that the Marian faith is the beating heart of the church and it comes before the Petrine. So you can't, in, in this sort of whatever, interim space between the parousia and, and the resurrection and the ascension, you can't just slough off the institutional side of the church, but you also can never mistake the, as he calls it, the scaffolding for the heart. Right. right. The scaffolding exists, all of the institutional aspects, which, which includes the you know, the apostles, the, you know, the, the priesthood and, and all this kind of, all of that exists to protect the Marian heart of the church, which lives on particularly in the saints because they represent the encounter of the creature with God in faith, right? And so in that way, in heaven, all the scaffolding will fall away and what will remain, right? The nuptial heart of the church, right? That encounter between God and the creature in the communion of saints. So, yeah, so he has this wonderful soaring vision and he really, I think it's very... It'd be great for uh, discussion with other denominations and various things like this. Like I think, I think, yeah. So that that was that was the first thing I ever did was was do an article for Princeton Theological Review because I think they're so Barthian, right? I mean, in in in, in trajectory, and so uh, both are on the institution of the church. Um, can be really helpful. The problem, of course, is that the marian aspect of the church isn't exactly helpful. Among
1: <laughs> but at least institutionally, right? Right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, so, the heart yeah. versus the. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um,
2: well, you mentioned his opus. Is that Glory, Glory, of the Lord? Yeah. It seems rude to have an opus that's like eight hundred million pages long. Right. Right. He's got two, though. He's got It's, two it's opuses,
1: very rude. Right. He's got the Glory of the Lord, and then and the old.
0: Well, yeah. So, so the magnum opus really is the trilogy, which is Herlikite, right? *Glory to the Lord Theodrama*, and then um, the the uh, *Theologic*. So, it's this it's this triple <laughs> beast, right? Exactly. Which <laughs> it's three?
2: Right. It's a trilogy uh, re- yeah. opus. Yeah,
0: it's ridiculous. It's um, ridiculous. But
2: what? So, say you're someone like me who knows nothing. Where would you start if you wanted to get into Balthazar more? Yeah.
0: I think in the spirit of attempting to swim in his mind, right, instead of, you know, fitting him into ours, I think the first thing, and this has happened in the past, where people ask this question, and and I'll usually, if I know them, I'll be able to recommend something, or I will ask, you know, where are you coming from, right, in your yeah. background? Because if, if he he is interested in so many things, so for example, the first volume of Theologic, uh, Warheit der Welt, it was published as a standalone book. Uh, Book earlier on before the trilogy was was sort of put together and finalized before his death. Um, and Truth of the World, right? And it's this massive, massive meditation and incredibly deep meditation on Thomas's De Veritate. So if you're interested in metaphysics, if you're interested in philosophy, then start there, right? Theologic one, I mean, because it sort of is this soaring, soaring vision of the real distinction and its relationship to so many other aspects of metaphysics. Um, if, if, for example, you are more concerned about matters of spirituality, there are a number of essays that, that would be wonderful, including that theology um, and sanctity essay. There's there's a couple. There's a great one on monasticism, right? Philosophy, Christianity, monasticism so on and so forth. If you're interested in the genealogy of history, you can read, like we read as a faculty, uh, the the patristics, the scholastics, and us, right? Which is a a wonderful, soaring genealogical view of of Christian tradition. So I think that's what I would say is, is, first and foremost, you know, where are you coming from? What is your interest? And then, because again, the importance is that foothold. Yeah. Right? Then you can sort of scale to other aspects, like a mountain climber, right? You can kind of climb across. Um, but uh, but I think, you know, for general, if, if I were just to pick one thing, um, there's Ignatius Press publishes a book that includes uh, Ratzinger and Balthazar's reflections on Mary and Mary in relation to the church. And um, that that book, I think, is just so accessible and so beautiful, both the Ratzinger and Balthazar sections. But I think there you really get to see Uh, Balthazar doing some of his best work um, because again Balthazar he everyone thinks of him maybe at least in the academic world as the author of this trilogy but he wrote dozens of smaller books right uh, for just popular reading um, and and things like that particularly in in the crisis of the post-conciliar Times I think he, the, the one book is, I, th- I think the English translation is um, Primer for an Unsettled Layman. Right? <laughs> right? So, which, is, which is hilariously formal Thank to say, you, yeah. you know, uh, read this if you're confused, right? Or, you know, this kind of thing. So, so he wrote all over the map. And, and I think, yeah, so anyway. And then the other two books, I mean, we started in that uh, seminar with Dr. Hauser We started with uh, Love Alone is Credible and Engagement with God which in some ways can function as the summaries respectively of the first volume of the trilogy and the second volume of the trilogy, mm-hmm. right? And engagement with God really, really kind of uh, was, was a powerful thing because he's talking about all these issues with the church, right? How do you deal with the church in the modern world and so on and so forth? And that's a really good one. Um, but if, if you want to know his thoughts on sort of a combination of theological history, a combination of you know, theological insight, philosophical insight, then Love Alone is Credible is, is really a place to go. So, so in other words, it's complicated. There's no <laughs> yeah. easy, yeah, but, but, but it is important that, and I think that's true with any, with any author, right? I, I would say the same thing about Thomas. If someone were to ask where to start, in Thomas, depending on your proclivities and your background and your formation, maybe you should start with this commentary in the Gospel of John. Yeah. Because not many people start there, but throwing people into the Summa, I think is sometimes unfair.
2: Right, you know, because, starting at the beginning. Yeah,
0: exactly. Because exactly. not not many people know that. But, I mean, Thomas, he was also a poet. But he was, I mean, to be a master at that time of theology, you had to, your primary thing was commenting on scripture, right? Yeah. Not not writing sumas at that time. So, yeah.
1: Um, Matt, what was your dissertation about? Because you wrote on Balthazar, of course. And uh, what, what did you write about? What did you argue?
0: Yeah, so I basically attempted to, because I, I guess the way that I see it is that <clears throat> because he died in 1988, uh, there's a lot of reception still going on, right? So in other words, with Balthasar, the figure with the magnum opus this big, first we have to figure out what the heck he's saying before we can sort of make <laughs> necessarily comparative arguments, things like that. So, so my, first, my first argument was, look, this is, this is what this theme is. Mm-hmm. in his work, and then allow that to engage in these skirmishes on the on the borders, as it were, uh, with other aspects of other theologies and various things like that. So that's essentially what I did. So it's an expositive argument more than anything that this is what this theme is, right? And I think that's more fitting for Baltazar, at least at this stage. So I wrote on person and mission,
2: mm-hmm.
0: basically in Baltazar, uh, assessing his categories of personhood and how that's related to mission at the level of... Um, you know, the Trinity, Christology, and then ecclesiology, all three. So nothing ambitious, really. Um, but, but, you know, but I was sitting down, I was thinking of this, and I was like, I don't know how to do this except explicitly doing this. So I don't claim to be exhaustive in any of those areas, but you sort of do need to see, I think, that that swath, right? And, and he does mention in some of his reflections upon his own writing that, you know, Trinitarian theology, Christology, and ecclesiology, he sort of constantly. Circling those in any essay you're gonna get a little bit of any e- on each of those. So you kind of have to do that a little bit um, But you know, but he his whole thing is that he has what some have called a mission Christology um, This is the way he deals with the issues of consciousness in Christ um, uh, he, he really takes uh, You know, he has a famous article on personhood um, On the concept of the person and so you really do see him kind of associating person and mission in a very Ignatian way. Mm -hmm. I mean, if if Shavara was the first one maybe to write a theology of the Exercises uh, of Ignatius, you really do have to see Balthazar as sort of a continuation of that here. Um, But it's also, I I have to say, his I think my dissertation sort of bounces back and forth between him as Ignatian and then him as Johannine. I mean, those two kind of sources, right? John is everywhere in his Mm -hmm. work Mm -hmm. uh, in that way. Um, Yeah,
1: founded a community focused on Johannine Exactly. spirituality in a certain way, right?
0: Certain- right, Johannes Gemeinschaft, he founded this. So he, so a number of things, you know, he had the Johannes Verlach, which is the, the publishing uh, company that he started, um, and then the community as well, which he founded with Adrian von Speyer, which is another essential thing to know about him, is his friendship with Adrienne, right? And the fact that she was, I mean, she came into the church under Balthazar's uh, guidance and really began to have uh, mystical experiences of sorts, you know, be it... Um, you know, she would, she would have, she would experience locutions, visions, uh, and then she would be dictating kind of, and, and Balthazar would be like sort of writing down what she was saying and it would become works, right? Books and things like this, right? So she, um, and I encourage anyone, uh, you know, cause there's, everyone has an opinion upon Adrian and, and the relationship between Balthazar, at least, at least anyone that knows a little bit about Balthazar, um, just read her commentary on the gospel of John, just read it. And see if it brings you benefit. I think that's the number one thing that I would say because I, you know, I'm reading all this stuff. You know, whatever, pro or or con. You know, do you include her as an academic in your writing? You know, so on and so forth. Right? Because she has, she has her writings also span shelves and shelves. Right? I mean, in this, so it's impo- impossible almost to include all of it in the dissertation. But nevertheless, um, just reading her was so. I remember, you know, at a diner eating a. You know, breakfast. You know, at the counter, and just reading this commentary on John, and just being so blown away. I don't think I finished the breakfast, right? Because it's just so incredible. It's one of these. She's one of these authors where you sort of have to stop after every paragraph and just say, mm, and just like savor it. You know. So, um, but that's that's another essential thing. And and she had experiences of of John and Ignatius. You know that that were very powerful. Um, I believe her commentary on John, she was assisted by Ignatius, right, in writing this, right? So, so it's sort of all this interesting stuff. So whatever else you think, I think the proof is in the pudding with her writings, you know, just, just read them and, and see what comes. Um, so yeah, so John was a huge, a huge force uh, there for, for him. And you'll just see it. I mean, if you know anything about, if you've read uh de la Potterie or any other great Johannine scripture scholars on the Gospel of John you know read that and then move towards Balthazar and I think you'll you'll get a lot more kind of hermeneutical advantage by by doing so
1: excellent that's that's fantastic and it seems like this dissertation theme of person and missionhood is an organic connection to your first encounter with Balthazar right with yeah yeah your own sense of mission, your own sense of spiritual direction that was so charged. Is that fair? I have this theory that... uh, (laughs) Everyone actually writes about themselves for their dissertation. <laughs> Which is why. That's it.
0: That's it. <laughs>
1: just saying. I, I think it's
0: true. I think it's true. <laughs> right. Just like every uh, psychologist is trying to just figure themselves yeah. out. Right, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. If right you didn't exactly. No,
2: uh, Dr. Hughes Huff wrote about punishment for his dissertation. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's
1: pretty important to me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah so. Like this theory. <laughs> Good. Well, thank you, Matthew. This has been wonderful. Um, I do you want to talk about um, any fun stories or um, dreams or what you would serve him for dinner or anything like that? Um, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. I'd
0: probably, I'd probably uh, ask my wife to make uh, schnitzel and schpatzel because she, she's very good at that. I don't really know. I'm, I'm assuming that the Swiss sort of eat that. I don't even really know, but I mean, I mean, whatever, German speaking, you know, whatever. No, you know, I mean, I mean, a couple of stories. He... he uh, one of my favorite stories that just goes to show how voracious of a reader and, and how much of a uh, just a scholar he was, because I don't want to lose that also, to, you know, talking about how much of a sort of non-theologian he was in terms of the academic sense. He also was just a consummate scholar. And uh, I think it was Father Fessio, the founder of Ignatius Press, right? He, he took, he was going over to meet Balthazar and brought a book with him. It was a German book, I believe basically seeing if he should translate this for for publication at Ignatius Press in the American market. And um, he gave it to Balthazar, you know, they had dinner, whatever, they went to sleep. Um, The next morning, okay, and they, they were up decently late. The next morning, Balthazar comes down with this 500-page book and it's all annotated with, marked up and has said, this is the best I've read in the subject, you know, publish it, right, whatever. So, so he must have read it throughout the night and, and you know, it's so like just amazing. So this is like his life, right? And apparently his flat was just covered in books. I mean, there wasn't a bare wall, right? It was just all books. Um, and he really, I mean, I think in, along those lines, um, he really did such good for academic theology, maybe by virtue of being apart from it. A little bit I, th- yeah. I think that that gave him perspective it allowed him to uh, say things that maybe the academic guild wouldn't allow him to say but I think things that maybe theology in general needs to hear said right um, along those lines so, so that's really wonderful he also just in this point of the whole um, there's a famous story that I think him de Lubac and a few others were doing a puzzle maybe in some chalet or something I think I think may have been the story but um, uh, they were doing a puzzle, and of course, Balthazar, being the consummate integrative thinker who sees the whole at all times, he's just like, doop, 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 doop. <laughs> done, like done, in in a moment. You know, he could just do one of these puzzles. So, so. Um, this is why you're drawn to him. Fair. Yeah. I can see that. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. So so was he. Though I'm assuming he found them boring because he was so good at them. He, he was just moving on, you know, whatever. And then the other the other famous thing that, that people relate about him, which is really cool to know, is that he he gave away his stereo system towards the end of his life. Um, and when he was asked by it, he should have said very bashfully, right? Because he was a very very unpretentious person. Uh, he said, uh, "Yeah, well, I I I read the scores in my mind, and I can." play them on the piano, all memorized. Um, and I can also hear them, right? And so, so he just knew all of Mozart, all of Bach, right? He was just so, it just was one with him, you know, in that way. So Henri de la Bach, I think, called him the most cultured man of Europe while he was alive. So he brings all of this to bear, right, upon everything that he does. But I think that's what draws me, is is that he's the most cultured man, perhaps, of his time. And at the same time, he was so radically... Enraptured by Jesus Christ, and all of that was allowed to kind of move towards his Christian faith and to be actualized in it. Um, so I do have a feeling. I think. I think the more that people scratch the surface with Balthazar, the more that um, the more benefit people will get from him. So,
1: Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you very much,
2: Matt. Yeah, thank you. We are
1: very pleased to have talked to Matt, and just want to remind our
0: listeners that this is a particularly good podcast. that no. <laughs> she won't say it. I will not say it. Just one question. Does the particular good podcast participate in the common good podcast? Like, is that is that like a you know higher one or something? Yeah, yeah, right, right. Means- <laughs> We're still evaluating whether we care about the common good. <laughs> <laughs> love it. The good sampling of these particular goods.
1: Particular good, not particularly good. It's a name. <laughs> not a place. Terrible. Yeah.